Well, as we come to the 11th chapter of Romans, we come to another full chapter, chapters 9, 10, and 11, on Israel's apostasy and rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And you might be wondering about this time, what does this have to do with us as 21st century American Christians? One of my favorite phrases in the Bible was used by the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that before he even began his earthly ministry, Jesus attended a wedding at Cana. And the wine ran out, and the mother of Jesus came to him and said, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. Sounds a little bit indignant. It sounds a little bit disrespectful. We have trouble with that word woman, but uh, woman in the Greek and Hebrew can mean anything from mother to wife. It's all the same word. But, but as you know, even though Jesus had not started his ministry, he had not revealed himself as the Messiah to his disciples, nevertheless, he turned water into wine, into the best wine ever made, or maybe in this case, the best wine ever created. But I want us to see the literal translation of Jesus' response. Woman, what does this have to do with us? Literally, John records Jesus as saying, What to me and to you, woman? What to me and to you? It was a Hebrew idiom that was used when someone was asked to get involved in a matter that the person probably felt they really had no concern or business in this. He could say to the one asking him, what to me to, and to you? Meaning, this is your business. How am I involved? And that helps us understand that there was no disrespect in Jesus' response for his mother, nor was he unwilling to get involved. So Mary took Jesus' response as a green light, and she told the servants to do whatever Jesus said to do. When we get to Romans chapters 9 and 11, with the rejection of Israel... We need to be reminded, what to me and to you? This is Israel's business. How am I involved? How should I be involved? And so I want to suggest several reasons that this subject concerning Israel's apostasy should be involved interest to you. First, the underlying issue that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 11 is, can God's promises fail? Can God's promises fail? Since Israel rejects Christ, they rejected Christ, have God's promises failed in this regard? God chose the nation of Israel as his people apart from all the other nations on the earth. He could have chosen anybody. He chose the Jews. He chose Israel. There used to be a saying, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Because they were the smallest of the people, they were the least likely, and all those kind of things. But Moses said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And later, through the prophet Jeremiah, God assured this sinful nation that was about to go into captivity for 70 years, that his promises to Israel could never fail, and that he would restore their fortunes, and he would have mercy on them. 
and to dispel the thought that Israel's sin could lead to their permanent rejection by God, Jeremiah added, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The fact is, the heavens cannot be measured. And the foundations of the earth cannot be searched. Literally, it means fully explored. Therefore, what? God will never cast off his people. In other words, if God rejects Israel as his people, then his promises can fail. All his promises can fail. And if his promises to Israel fail, how do you know that God will keep his promises to us in Romans 8? And they will not fail. And since those promises included all of our trials working out together for good, and, and this promise that no trial, no tribulation will ever cut us off from his love, the question of why God has seemingly rejected Israel suddenly becomes very practical. It boils down to, can you trust God to do as he promises? What to me and to you? And then second on a broader scale, if you pay attention to the news, and we probably all do, then you've no doubt felt that the world is out of control, right? You felt like the bad guys are winning all over the place. You see the horrors of terrorism, war, natural disasters that wipe out thousands. You hear about school shootings and all kinds of other shootings. You hear about the terrible crimes that are committed with towards little children, and you you read about corruption in government, both here and, and all over the world. And you hear about the horrible persecution of Christians throughout the world. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Sometimes it can be discouraging and depressing. Often it's discouraging and depressing, isn't it? And the, to the point that you wonder, is God really in charge of world events? Romans chapter 11 shows us that he is in charge and that his promises and his purposes would not, will not ever fail. And this chapter also shows us how we should view the Jewish people and how we should view and think about Israel today as a nation. And it shows us that even though God has set aside Israel as a nation for a time, there is now and always has been a remnant, a remnant that has been saved. And that one day all Israel will be saved, it's going to say in Romans chapter 11, in a future time when God will fulfill all his promises. So Romans chapter 11 shows us that as Christians, we should continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we should love Jewish people and we should seek to bring them to know Jesus Christ as their Messiah and their Savior. Then one other practical value of Romans chapter 11 is that it, it helps us to look beyond ourselves. Look beyond ourselves to God's great purpose for all of history. And when we do that, that will lead us to worship him in glorious ways. In fact, that's the way Paul ends the chapter. If you want to look at Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33, Romans eleven thirty-three, Paul ends the chapter with an outburst of praise that he, he is caught up with the truth that he writes about here. I, I just love that about the Apostle Paul. He'll, he'll start 
after he gives this praise at the end of chapter 11, he's down on his knees in chapter 12 when he says to, then I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. You know, he, he, he's begging, pleading on his knees, but he is just driven to praise and, and adoration of God. At any moment, you can read almost any of his letters and you find those times that he's driven to this praise and, and adoration. So after he says these things in chapter 11 and verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, who, who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Sometimes we get so focused, self-focused, and focused on things going on in the world, when our eyes should be on God and his glory. His plan includes us. What to me and to you, God's plan includes us. But it's not ultimately about us. It's not ultimately about us. It's about his glory being displayed over the whole earth. Our lives take on eternal significance as we devote ourselves to the eternal purposes of God. So with that, we come to Romans chapter 11, the first verse. Once again, Paul asks a rhetorical question that's been on somebody's mind, probably a critic's mind. Has God rejected Israel? Verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Megenita, the strongest negative in the Greek language. No, not ever, never, ever, no way. It's not even remotely possible that God reject his people. And then Paul uses himself as an example. Paul is basically saying, if God has rejected Israel, then, then what about me? What it to me? Explain this one. So he continues in verse 1. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. But he says, he doesn't say I'm a Jew. He says what? I am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a particular tribe. That means that Paul belongs to the nation that's connected to the land that God gave Israel. The land of promise. He's an Israelite. He's a genuine one. He's not a proselyte. He further says, I am an Israelite not by choice but by birth. I come from the seed of Abraham by blood. He's a real Jew. He is a real son of the land inherited by birth. An heir to all the promises that God made to Israel. Yet he's a believer in Jesus Christ as well. He's a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, if God has rejected his people, then I, Paul, I'd be high up on the rejection list. <laughs> but I am not. Verse 2 of Romans chapter 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now what does foreknowledge mean? What does it mean he foreknew? It basically means a predetermination to love. A predetermination to love, a predetermination. 
We normally think of foreknowledge as knowing something before it's going to happen. But that's not the idea of the word here. Prognosco. Gnosko means to know. Pro means for or before. And that's not the, to know ahead of time is not the idea of it. It doesn't mean to know something before it happens. It means to determine it. It means to determine it. It's a guaranteeing word, and we see another guaranteeing word here in the word his. God says his people, they belong to God. He has not cast them away. They're his people. He doesn't say Israel at this point. He says his people because that ties them in with him. Whom he foreknew, he predetermined to love. Now, if you understand the biblical word of the word know, it helps. We, we think of knowledge as some kind of intellectual thing, and that's not the idea of the word to know here. In the Old Testament, we see that a man knew his wife, and she had a child. It's the knowing of intimacy. It's the knowing of a close relationship. It's the knowing of love. In Amos 3.2, the Lord said, Israel only have I known. Israel only have I known. It doesn't mean the only people that God knew about or knew of were the Jews. No. Israel only have I predetermined to love with intimacy. Israel only have I joined with me in a very intimate bond. For example, it's the same thing with Joseph and Mary. When the people saw that she was with child, but Joseph had not known her. Or it says in the Bible that a woman never knew a man. It doesn't mean that she never knew a man existed or didn't have any friendships with men or didn't know the name of one. It means that she never had a relationship with one, an intimacy of love. And that's the essence of it. It's a predetermined love relationship. The word no gnosko carries the love relationship. Pro gnosko to pre know or foreknow. It means a predetermined love relationship. So God has not pushed away or rejected his own people whom he predetermined to love. And you can go, don't need to turn there, but Deuteronomy 7, 7, where God says to Israel, he has set his love on them and chose them. So it's a foreordination of a unique love relationship. His knowledge is the foreknowledge of his his foreknowledge is the the foreknowledge of his own will. So it's really much the same as determination. And uh, turn over to Acts chapter two, verse twenty-three for a moment. Second chapter of Acts, the twenty-third verse. And I, I, I quoted this one about two or three times in Sunday school class this morning, so that's why I want you to turn to it. Paul is preaching to the Jews who are in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And look what he says in verse 23 of the second chapter of Acts. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter says, You took him with your wicked hands, you crucified him, You slew him at the hands of godless men. And we talked about Pilate this morning in Sunday school class. But look what he says. He was delivered by the predetermined plan 
and foreknowledge of God. Now, foreknowledge in that context only mean preordination, predetermination, predetermined plan, the foreknowledge of God. Here they're seen as equal, as synonyms. They're equivalent statements. God had already determined what would happen, what Jesus would do on the cross, and how that was to come about. And God predetermined to set his love. It's the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We were redeemed with precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ was foreknown before the foundation. Who else was foreknown before the foundation of the world? We were. We were. Does that mean that God just looked down in time and said, hey, this guy called Jesus, he's going to die on the cross and, you know, does that mean he just looked down before time and said, Bill Slaybaugh, he's going to accept Jesus, so if he's part of, part of my... No, God predetermined it before the foundation of the world. For he foreknew before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times. Jesus has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And you remember Romans eight twenty nine, For those whom he foreknew, that's us, he predetermined to love us with intimacy. He predetermined to set his love on us. He also predestined us to become conformed to the image of his own son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But where's the proof? Thinking people or maybe even critical people will go, okay, where's the proof? How do we know that? Well, that takes us back to Romans chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is the reference from 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, where there were dark days, there were tragic days in Israel, days of apostasy, evil days. So let's, let's go back with this to 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at the 18th verse. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18. Apostasy had taken over the whole of Israel. It was a rampant apostasy in the land. There was a very vile queen, wretched queen, by the name of Jezebel. <laughs> we know Jezebel. We don't name our kids Jezebel, and we don't name them Judas. That's how popular she is. She was the queen of Israel, but she was also the priestess of Baal. Her father was the priest of Baal. And she moved into the palace with King Ahab as queen. And when she moved into the palace, she brought 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah with her. The Asherah was a female deity, and she was worshipped on the high places. And in this time, Israel was building, people of Israel building all these high places where they went up to these mountaintops, and they, they, they built these altars to worship the Asherah. She was basically a fertility goddess. Very ugly thing, as, as the idol. And Ahab was the evil king. 
He did evil in the sight of God. You know, you read in, in 1 Kings, and one king did evil in the same way that Jeroboam did evil, and he did evil like his father's. Ahab did more evil than all the kings before him. And Ahab married this wicked, Baal-worshipping priestess by the name of Jezebel. Now Elijah became the focal point of Jezebel's anger and hatred because he represented God. And she despised Elijah, the prophet of God. Now Elijah wanted to call the country back to God and say, look, you're all out there worshiping Baal. Why don't we have a contest? The Super Bowl of the gods. The, 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 big, the, big, the big contest. And so we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18, where Elijah wanted to reverse the apostasy of his people. And he said, I want to have a contest. In verse 18, he says, I have not troubled Israel. It's not me who's causing all the problems here. But you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send out and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel. Get as many people as you can. Bring them here together with, while you're at it, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he calls a confrontation between him versus 850 prophets. And they come to Mount Carmel. You remember the confrontation, but I'm going to read quite a bit of this beginning at verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it is Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Baal was the God of thunder. He was the God of lightning. He was the God of fire. If anybody could answer by fire, Baal could. They would hear the thunder going across in the springtime, across the skies, and they'd say, that's Baal. That's Baal. So what did the people say? I will put a fire under it. And the people said, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God, 
Either he is occupied or gone aside or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances till the blood gushed out. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the evening offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Nothing on my sleeve, get close, just come near. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Incidentally, they have to go down to the base of, of Mount Carmel to the Mediterranean Sea, fill these pitchers, come back up. And uh, three times they did that. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the prophets, all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. What a great moment. And you know what Elijah expected? I think we all would. He expected immediate revival, immediate restoration to the worship of the true and living God. He expected a national repentance. He expected everything to take place instantaneously just because the people had said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But when it was all over, he got horribly depressed. He became so depressed about the unchanged apostasy that he became despondent. So go down to chapter 19, 19th chapter of 1 Kings, and we pick it up at the first verse. Now Ahab told Jezebel all the Elijah had done, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as one of the life of them by tomorrow about this time. High noon tomorrow. <laughs> You're in trouble. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. 
he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. He looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones, a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him. Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And look what he says. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Really, Elijah? Do you think you're the only one left? And God reminds him in verse 18, after he deals with him a little bit more, God says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I've, let, I've reserved for myself, I've set for myself 7,000. The word translated kiss there is the Hebrew word that's usually translated to worship. Worship Baal. But kiss the Baal. Since they put the word mouth here, <laughs> it's translated kiss because that's what you kiss with. Literally, the word means to kiss at. And it has the idea of prostrating yourself before a sovereign or a god in honor and homage and worship. To get down to prostrate yourself down at the person's or the, 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 the feet of the one that we're honoring or worshiping. Now we can turn back to Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 4 again. And we can see how Paul applies all this to the remnant. The fourth verse of Romans chapter 11. What is the divine response to Elijah? What did God say to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What did God say? I have kept for myself. Not only were there 7,000 left hiding in caves who still worship the living and true God who were faithful to him, but God says, I have kept them to myself. I have reserved them to myself. God has reserved to himself 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. Even though Elijah thought he was the only person left in the nation who was true to God, God says to him, not so. There are 7,000 that I'm going to protect because they have not gone into apostasy and idol worship. God says, I reserve them to myself. They, that, it's a sovereign preservation by God. God always keeps a remnant. The nation might be apostate, but God keeps a remnant. God always keeps a remnant. There was a remnant in Daniel's time. As they were taken into captivity in Babylon, in Persia, there was still the remnant. There was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we don't know how many more, but there was a remnant. Unbeknownst to a lot of us, when the remnant 
that when the people returned to Jerusalem after the 70 years of captivity, most did not return to Jerusalem. Only a remnant returned. Only a remnant returned to Jerusalem with, with Ezra and Nehemiah. Then there was a remnant in Malachi's time, the last book of the, of the Old Testament, the last prophet, uh, last prophet of the Old Testament, when the, the nation of Israel was in complete apostasy, it would seem. But Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. A remnant. And when Jesus came upon this earth, the whole nation of Israel was apostate. But God's remnant were the followers of John the Baptist. And God's remnant were the disciples of Jesus Christ. Then there was the church at Jerusalem, which was all Jewish, still a Jewish remnant. 3,000 Jews were converted at the day of Pentecost, thousands and thousands more in chapters 4 and 5 of Acts. Up to 20,000 by the time you get to chapter 8. And they're still all Jewish. It's still God's remnant that he has preserved. And they filled all of Jerusalem with their teaching. There are more and more Jews being converted in the book of, of Acts. And the remnant became tens of thousands of them. Tens of thousands of them by the time Paul penned his epistle to the Romans. There has always been a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 11. In the same way then, there has always come to be at the present time, when Paul wrote this, at the present time now, there's always a remnant according to God's gracious choice. No, bad, no matter how bad it gets in the world, no matter how bad it gets spiritually as people turn to other gods and all their gods, and, and uh, even in the time of a holocaust, as in Nazi Germany, God keeps a remnant to himself according to his gracious choosing. And the remnant is proof positive that God keeps his promises. There's a story that's told that... Uh, when uh, Napoleon was, was struggling with his faith, and you'd wonder why a guy like Napoleon struggled with his faith. There's all kinds of reasons he would struggle with his faith. And he asked one of his advisors and said, how do you know the promises of God are true? His advisor looked at him and said, the Jews, sire. The Jews. As a whole, today, Israel is apostate. But God has preserved his people and kept a remnant unto himself. And like Paul, if you have any Jewish heritage, you're the remnant that God is talking about here. There is a remnant, a spiritual group, a chosen group. And, and, and this is great. Verse 5, according to God's gracious choice. They are not saved by their own will, but they're saved by the will of God. They're not they, they are saved not because they chose God, but because God chose them and they responded in faith. God predetermined before the foundation of the world to choose some Jews, a remnant. And God predetermined before the foundation of the world that God is going to choose some Christians, a remnant. 
And so they are the elect according to his grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's where verse 6 says, where it says, For it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Salvation is always the election of grace. The election of grace. Unconditional, undeserved, unearned grace resulting from the sovereign free choice of God. And so all through history, God has kept choosing out a remnant, a remnant, a remnant, so that he could preserve his godly seed, in this case Israel, to fulfill the promise to save the nation. And Paul, who is a member of that remnant, gives his own testimony. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Does that say to all eternity he's chosen us? Well, that's true too. But it's from all eternity. God has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. If you are a Christian, it's because God chose you before the foundation of the world, and now he's made that choosing manifest in your own lifetime. The remnant is elected by grace. It's all of God's sovereign grace, all of God's sovereign will, and God has chosen his remnant in every time period. And God has chosen us in this time period. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, it's, it's mind-boggling at times, but uh, when we put it in the context of your love, your purposes, your plan of salvation for the ages, then we can begin to see in a very real way how you reach into our lives, how through your Holy Spirit you begin that work of even giving us the faith that we might respond to you in faith. With some of these things, Lord, all we can do is do as the Apostle Paul we can bless your holy name. We can praise you. We can magnify your name before us, Lord. And it causes us to come to our knees in worship, in adoration, and in thanksgiving. And this we do. In Jesus' name, amen.